Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, I'm speaking with Emmy and Eddie-nominated documentary editor Inbal Lesner, ACE. Her work includes the documentaries Brave Miss World, CNN's series of decade-defining documentaries on the 70s, 80s, 90s, and aughts, Mothers in the Middle, and Can We All Just Get Along, for which she was nominated for an ace Eddie. In addition to her documentary work, she was an additional editor on Natalie Portman's directorial debut, A Tale of Love and Darkness. Today, we're discussing her work on the Stars Network's documentary series, Seduced, Inside the Nexium Cult, for which she worked as an executive producer, editor, and writer. Tell me a little bit about the project and your involvement, because you, unlike many editors, are have a lot of other titles on this production, including executive producer and writer. I've talked to a lot of documentary people that say documentary editors should always get a writing credit. I think they should. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that, how how you came to be so uh, intimately involved in this project and on so many levels. Well, I, I work first and foremost as an editor. That's how I made my career and made a living ever since I was in high school, really. Most projects I start as an editor and then receive other credits according to what other you know, responsibilities I take on. With Cecilia Peck, my producing partner on this, we had done a feature documentary called Brave Miss World that I think is still on Netflix for a few more days. Um, Back in 2014, it came out. And that's a project I also started with the idea that I'll be an editor, but then ended up being a producer. And so uh, we have been looking for another project to do together and have started a couple that didn't quite make it out there. And she came up to me with the idea for a project about Nexium because she had met these women who recently came out of being in this cult. And she asked me to edit together a sizzle reel. She had uh, produced a little initial kind of preliminary interview with some of these women. And I had didn't know really anything about it. I looked online I f- and found some news reports and some pieces that were out at the time that we were able to download and integrate together with this preliminary interview and cut something together to present to stars. That really was our first meeting. And she asked me to you know, join her in the meeting and help her pitch it, build a deck and all that, those things. So we had the history of working together and I was at that capacity before. So that's how I um, kind of joined her as a, as a producing partner. She was the director, but I knew I would be able to cut it all myself, especially not in the timeline that this production demanded. And so I was a lead editor, and towards the very end, we convinced Stars, the network, to also give us writing credit. As, as you said, I feel it's always warranted for documentary editors to receive that credit, and so we were grateful that, you know, I was grateful I was able to get that credit, and I share that with Cecilia as well. Is it more difficult with structure when you have uh, multiple episodes or, or your story is told over such a long period of time? instead of just, like, for example, one feature-length documentary? Well, I have to say we treated Seduced as one film, as a continuous sort of a four-hour feature. For TV, we had to build previously-ons and sort of teasers, cliffhangers for the end of the episodes, and every episode has an organizing principle, like a main theme that runs through it, but... I think it really is a four-hour journey. So we didn't treat it that much differently than we would a one-off kind of continuous feature piece. It becomes complicated when you have, you know, a large team to manage and everybody's in charge of a piece of that puzzle. We did have to make sure everybody was real team player, that they would be flexible enough to give away a scene for to another episode if that was the real best place for it. So not to say it was easy to find a structure, but, you know, once we did and everything fell into place, it really felt like 
a one long piece that was just broken up to four parts. Uh, it was really our intention to do five parts. We felt the story lended itself to that. And for Cecilia and I specifically, the piece about healing and recovery was particularly critical and important to tell. And so we didn't want to you know, do away with it and just end with the conviction of Keith Raniere at the trial. And we really wanted to follow these women and see how they put their lives back together, uh, both India Oxenberg and the other characters, how they able to recover and find their voice again and speak out and perhaps affect the change moving forward. That, for us, that piece of healing and recovery was the idea for the fifth episode. And we had to fight the network a little bit for that. And I think the compromise uh, was to make a supersized fourth episode. So the fourth episode runs 80 minutes long and it does have all the pieces we were hoping to kind of get into it. When you were doing that writing and that structuring, is that something that you found that you needed to do that like on a wall or in writing, or was that something that you discovered actually in a timeline of an editing system? It's probably a combination. And when you work with multiple editors, you also have to end a story team. There was like a story room. We have to adjust to what everybody's comfortable with and their own process of getting to where they need to get creatively. There was a lot of cards on walls, multiple walls, multiple cards. There was a huge wall in the storeroom that was evolving with cards in different colors. I really have developed a version to paper. So my thing is like digital storyboards. And so we work, I have a template on Google I like to work with. And we also tried Miro for the first time for storyboarding. And I just like the idea, you know, especially after COVID hit, but even when we were still all together in the office in 2019 and the beginning of 2020, the ability to take my board with me home or share it with people who are not in the office or in another room and just move those digital cards around and add detail to them and erase it, like, you know, without dealing with too much paper. So there was a lot of storyboarding going on. There was a lot of kind of outlines and extra documents. The way we worked with the network, we had to request every time we came with an idea for a scene or a shoot, we had to formally request that shoot approved by the network. And so it kind of forced us to really dig into with every single scene what we were looking to get from it. And, you know, this is unscripted, but in an ideal case scenario, what that scene would tell, what would be the beginning, middle and end of it, and then let it surprise us, you know, when something else happens really in the field. But I had to produce a mountain of documents for everything we wanted to shoot and then report afterwards what actually was shot and then start putting this together on paper. So we had really multiple versions and formats of this evolving script and structure. Mm, interesting. You used some very artistic or, well, I don't want to call them clever, although they certainly were, but the use of animation, for example. Um, this is a sensitive topic, and I'm sure you could have sensationalized it and done full-on recreations, shot on you know video. Talk to me about the use of those animations, and when did, they, when did you get them, or when did you know that you were going to use animation? When we were first conceiving the series and developing it in early 2019, I would say, we were waiting for this trial of Keith Raniere and to start, and we knew there were no cameras or recording devices of any kind allowed in the courtroom. Initially, we thought structurally that the trial would run across the entire series. It would be the way by which you learn about what was happening in this group. Eventually, after India Oxenberg joined the project, we found a more linear structure to it, uh, which was, to be honest, always, always there. But anyway, the trial took kind of a backstage, and we only get to it when we get to it chronologically in the story. Initially, when the trial was going to be a kind of a bigger component, nonlinear component through the story, we were looking for ways to make it visual and, and, and figure out how to tell those stories that were in the courtroom 
and would only be available through our own experience of sitting there, our, our subject sitting there and talking about it afterwards and the courtroom transcripts, really. And we started looking into different types of visualizations and animation ideas. You know, it was later on after India actually had joined the project in the fall, she started binging on documentaries on the weekend and we all would kind of try to binge together on the same films. And she watched Miss Americana, the Taylor Swift documentary. And then Cecilia watched it and so I had to watch it. And there was this tiny little segment there about a court case that Taylor Swift had against somebody who assaulted her sexually. And it was really a short thing and it was just a few illustrations, but they were done so beautifully and managed to evoke so much emotion by not being too figurative. I mean, they were more suggestive. And I was just like really liking the, the feel of it. And I contacted the producer of Miss Americana, who I've worked for before, and she connected me with Elise Kelly, this amazing artist uh, based in Washington, D.C. But she brought on her team and luckily stars out of the few artists we pitched were really into her artistry and voice and liked her early samples. And so we worked with her on developing what we needed. And, you know, as we started working with her, we wanted so much of it. We realized this could really help bring to life, not just the scenes that we didn't have visuals for because cameras were not rolling or we didn't have enough photos, access to photos, but because it was an emotional milestone that needed to, you know, be told in the most evocative way possible. And you know, animation is expensive and it takes a long time to produce. It takes a lot of people and we definitely did not budget. We're not approved to spend that much money. But, you know, make a long story short, luckily stars saw the vision, understood our need and they were supportive enough that we were able to get some illustrations, meaning not non-animated, but Elise made, found a way to make them moving. We called it this boiling texture. So if you see, there are some scenes which are really just told with, you know, 2D paintings that are not moving, not animated, but they have this boiling animated texture that makes them feel like you're moving. With, and we just added in the avid slight, very slight movements in and out or across to make it feel, you know, more alive. And then some sequences are fully animated, and those are really special. And, you know, we knew there were some core moments that we definitely warranted that treatment. The branding scene was certainly the, the first one where we knew this was for sure had to be done, and this was one of the first tests that Elise did with us. It was a real collaborative process to find the right tone, the right colors, the right imagery so it doesn't feel exploitative even when they're all naked it couldn't feel like pornographic it had to feel like the emotion of being in that very traumatic situation so it had to feel like shreds of memory kind of infused with all the trauma and give you kind of a sneak peek into that those memories if you see if you follow just the animated portions from episode one through episode four you'll see that they get the color palette, the clarity of them, the detail. Uh, it gets darker, it gets less cohesive. The tone shifts gradually towards the kind of most, you know, abusive, horrific scenes in episode three, and then kind of comes again into clarity as she walks out of the courtroom in the final, as India walks out of the courtroom in the final animated scene of episode four. There was a lot of thoughts put into it, and sometimes Cecilia and I would lie on the floor and contour ourselves and try to take photos of ourselves just to, to simulate what body position should be uh, illustrated in the, in the certain animation so we can convey to Elise how we saw those things. Um, it, it was really a fun part of the process, and I, I wish we could have more of it, but I think we ended up with just enough. Is that something, you know, you were mentioning photographing yourself. Is that something that you tried to edit together to send them to the illustrator? I think we did it once. You know, with Elise, we didn't have to over-explain just because she's so intuitive, and some of the ideas she came up with, 
you know, there's a scene towards the end of episode two where Ellison Mack pitches this idea of the secret sorority to India Oxenberg. And they're like crouching behind this table with a coffee machine. And she came up with this idea of Ellison showing India what this soror- secret soror- sorority is about and how you could push against your fears to really reach your full potential. And she made this like tiny version of India running back and forth between their hands into this like idealistic state. It's just, you can hardly explain it in words, but what she did visually was really the essence of what that pitch felt like. And it helps understand how anybody could even say yes to this crazy master-slave group. I mean, I think editorially, it was really the biggest challenge is to help you understand this very strange world, which took me personally months to really grasp and get even a a clear-eyed picture of all these different classes and courses and the web of programs and companies and sub-companies. And, you know, how do you then boil that down? India's first five years in the group, how do you boil that down to 90 minutes to really show the kind of gradual indoctrination that made her get to the point where she would say yes to being in a master-slave program. Yeah, and I was really touched by uh, India's mom talking about the guilt that she felt because she kind of feels like she got her into it in a way. I mean, she certainly didn't mean to have it go where it did, but that was some, uh, some really powerful stuff. Yes. I think the mother-daughter story for us is, if not The A story is definitely a strong B story and the kind of story both Cecilia and I are very interested in. You know, I come from a family of three daughters, three girls. I have my own two daughters. The dynamic between mothers and daughters is something that I find fascinating. I've I've done a few projects that kind of touch on that and explore that. And I think that the relationship between them with all the ups and downs and how Nexium really intentionally drew them apart, this whole idea of, of, of this whole tactic of family alienation was, is, is really uh, manifest itself very strongly in that India and Catherine story. You know, when we met India over a year ago, when we started filming with her, she was in a very different place. She didn't really understand all the dynamics. She didn't really understand the difference between what she thought was happening or what they made her think was happening versus what was really happening. And the relationship with her mom was one of these things that was still, you know, a collateral damage, a, a casualty of, of, these, of the years in the cult. And they weren't able to communicate clearly. They weren't, there was a lot of resentment and anger there. Not for the obvious reasons, but like a, a lot of very complex stuff. And so to tell that story and then have them at the end come to some resolution and understanding was very powerful narrative to follow. Did you feel that it was important to have a female team around you for this type of material? Very much so. Even though we filmed some interviews uh, initially with male former members, we had a very clear point of view that this story had to be told from the perspective of female former members. And because a lot of the teachings were sort of thinly veiled misogyny and they, the women suffered incredible abuse, sexual abuse. And there's a woman we interview who had a mental breakdown, suffered a, a psychosis as a result of these workshops. So, yeah, we felt that in order to give them a safe place to tell these stories in a, in a way that felt honest and respectful of their trauma and supportive. Truly, we, we needed to have uh, women in all key positions in the production. So from the two network executives through uh, the showrunners, Cecilia, the director, and myself, we tried to have female, our main cinematographer is a female. We tried to have uh, female camera operators, sound recordists, all the way down to PAs and, and assistant editors. And, you know, through the production, we had a strong female presence. Not to say we didn't bring on very sensitive male allies along the way, but it was a a female dominant production. And we feel like it had to be that. And we established protocol for how to handle and 
communicate with these women on the set as well as before and after. And we invited them to the editing room several times so that they feel part of the process and they don't feel like, okay, you, we got your story on tape and now we get to exploit it however we want. We didn't always tell the network that we were doing it, but we allowed them to come and fill in the blanks, help our editors understand some of the things that were difficult to understand. So they would visit and they, would, they saw some clips along the way. And when India joined, she became also involved and she watched some things. Uh, she didn't have final cut or anything, but she did have to be involved enough in the, in the building of the story to understand what we needed to tell it properly. You know, obviously multiple interviews over the course of several months with with India, especially. We hide it, right? Because we, we make it all the same setup. But yes, there were multiple days of, of interviews. And, you know, there were some incredible, beautiful, heart-wrenching stories that she told the first day. But there was also a lot more clarity that we gained from living with this and cutting this and developing the story in the edit room and things she realized she remembered later, things that she didn't quite understand or process or remember the first day that she was able to. So some of these things come out in verite scenes, in her meetings with experts, in just talking on her own out when she goes back and confronts the places where all these traumatic things happened and some of it comes out in in sit-down interviews. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Inbal Lesnar. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, Film Tools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Inbal Lesnar. I've worked on some documentaries early that everything was shot before I started editing. And since then, I've worked on documentaries where I was able to get more material during the edit. Can you speak to the value of being able to get more material as you're editing and seeing, oh, I need this connective tissue, I need this explained? Yeah. It was critical for this story because there was so much to unpack and so many directions and threads we could have gone and did go <laughs> and had to then give up and abandon or really distill in order to stay on this main track. You know, we didn't have eight or 10 or 20 hours. We really had to be self-disciplined on how concisely we had to tell this very complicated story. And the ability to see what works, what doesn't, cut something together and brainstorm together with your story team. Great to shoot this person now moving out or this person now having a confrontation or discussion about this aspect that we haven't fully developed. Yes, it was incredible to be able to keep filming. And I think stars, you know, initially thought we could have the whole thing done. I think within six months was the idea, kind of like from beginning to end with about a 12 to 14 weeks per editorial per episode. I should know, but I don't know where we ended up with, but could it probably double or close to double. It just needed more time to, to cook, you know, to, to get to where it needs to get, for us to make sense of the archival, this, this inside footage and how that connected to India's experience, how some of the stories intersected and overlapped. Where were, were those significant overlaps? When was the moment where, for example, Kelly, who was a coach in the program towards the later years of the story, ends up going to teach a class in Albany and sees India Oxenberg and, you know, asks her how she's doing because she has a mother, she has a sense that 
something's not right with her. And so they, you know, wanted to have a conversation about this. And that we shot, I think, kind of later in the process. And that was a very special moment. So there were several things, definitely the, the final scene where they all go, or one of the final scenes where all these women kind of team up and go to speak to law students in episode four to talk about the need for coercive control legislation and how they find their own voice and speak together and how impactful that can be for future lawmakers and for our understanding of the need for such legislation. So, yeah, some of these later scenes that we were able to capture are really extraordinary and they feel like, like you earn it because this was not shot in over one or two weeks, but because you have the benefit of the six months or nine months of, of shooting. And there was a real process of understanding that India went through, that these women, these other women also came to understand things about their journey and their experience because they have sat in that courtroom and because they had time to process, because they had time to speak to therapists um, about the meaning of this experience. They Our relationships with them developed. They were able, like I said, to see things in the edit room, in the edit room and then reflect on them. So all these kind of felt like a maturity that had to be earned. Talk to me about organizational principles. You said you edited in Abbott, I believe? Yes. There's just a, a ton of material. You've got all of this archival material that came from the cult itself that you guys found. There's all the interviews you did. There's verite stuff. There's animation, there's recreation, there's... Government documents, recordings. Right. What was the organizational principle? What did, uh, how did you find stuff when you had a story to tell? I think the core tool that we use is script sync. I really can't really fathom doing a documentary project without <laughs> script sync. I'm doing a documentary project right now that I would still be working on the rough cut if it weren't for script sync. It, I use it all the time, every minute, really, to search for words and ideas and phrases and, and review. Yes, it cuts down the time, but it also really helps you put that story together. So all our interviews were transcribed and script sunk. Some of the verite scenes that were dialogue dance were also transcribed. And in terms of organizing I like to have the material kind of available intuitively, and that means a certain clip can live in more than one place, in fact, in multiple places. So while we have the footage organized by day, like the regular dailies, we also have a lot of organizations by theme. So we'd have a theme of sexual assault or a theme of the gender-related programs and teachings. We had organized by characters, so anything related to Claire Bronfman, the heiress that bankrolled this organization, definitely anything that had to do with her, news reports about her would be kept in the same bin. We had extraordinary assistant editors who keep all of that organized, and we couldn't really do anything without them. And the search tools that Avid has improved, uh, probably with the pressure from Premiere, but just like are becoming better and better. And, you know, you can search bins and inside bins. And I have my own um, color coding with markers, formerly known as locators. <laughs> but we have a, a, a color code that everybody on the team follows and certain uh, keywords that everybody follow. So I know... As the showrunner, lead editor, I just don't have enough hours in the day or in my lifetime to watch every minute of material. And so in terms of organization on all my documentary projects, I empower my assistant editors and loggers. I really tell them, and I mean it, that they're the most important people on the entire team because they they get their eyes on every minute of material that I can't always get to. And so I encourage them to yell at me and through, the through these markers. And if something is funny, I tell them to put a smiley face. And sometimes I'll just look for a smiley face because I remember there was something funny in this scene and I just want to get to it quickly. And I do a search for a smiley face and I'll find those, locate, those markers. <laughs> Damn. 
Um, I'm dating myself. We can we can use either one. I think everybody they all know. They all know. So we log every piece of footage that we can get to very meticulously and with the same system, with the same keywords and, like I said, color coding, so that we all speak the same language. And when, when I search for a certain word, I can find what I'm looking for. And then, of course, I have bins and bins of little outtakes and subclips and my, my own selects. So I do interview selects and I do verite selects and I do archival selects. And that's my own little bank. And so if I walk into an edit room and I try to work with one of my team members and they work on an idea and I, I remember in my head, oh, I have this thing, I usually can find it pretty easily. Do you don't use phrase find at all? One of my editors that I worked with has had phrase find at home and he said it helped him find some new things and he was kind of having fun with it. I haven't had too much success or experience really working with it. So no, not yet. You sent me a couple of clips to look at from the movie. Um, one of them was that very difficult scene of the branding of the women. And animation is used in there as is music. Could you talk to me a little bit about the use of music and either what you tempt with or how far into the production process, post-production process, did you have you know who your um, composer was? So in full disclosure, the composer of the series is my husband, Daniel Lesnar. He's an extremely talented musician uh, and concert pianist. He has scored several of my films before. It was far from being a done deal when we started, but I use his library as a resource for my cuts, even when there's no chance he would be hired. I, it's just my one, my kind of go-to resource for temp music because he has such a varied, extensive library in a lot of different styles. So I just brought it all into the office and I told the editors, you know, just play around with whatever you want. We didn't necessarily have a very clear style and we just used, you know, different things. Cecilia had an idea, the director in our head, of this being digital score. It wouldn't involve any kind of real life instruments it should all be synthesized she heard some things I think in theater that inspired her to explore this kind of digital soundscape and had very strong ideas about that as she does about music always I knew Daniel could deliver that type of music and he had a lot of experience doing that and so I explored some other musical ideas that he was just roughing out on a piano in our house. And I said, well, this is starting to sound like brain scrambling to me. Like when you do this kind of messy scales, which is, you know, a little Philip Glass, but not really. And it has an, like another layer of dissonance and syncopated, you know, and I come from a background of music, as many editors do. So I had ideas of like what the structure of the music should be and that it should reflect the character's state of mind. Like how do you help use the music to explain somebody's brainwashing, somebody's being brainwashed and, and made to go to very dark places and make decisions they wouldn't otherwise make. And so can the music really help us tell that story? And so we tried different temp, but once, once Cecilia kind of had time to articulate her ideas about the digital score, Daniel did some tests with what that might sound like and took some of the themes and pieces I liked and gave them digital treatment. Instead of on the piano, we would do it with, with other digital instruments. And so it evolved that way. And then around, you know, our second rough cut, is when he was officially hired and started producing original music for the episodes. And, you know, that was just really fun. I was at that point so over my head with Picture Lock that I had to, in the interest of finishing the series and in the interest of domestic peace, <laughs> I had to step away and just let Cecilia and Daniel go at it. And it was, you know, I have to say it was magic because I kind of let them do it and very rarely interjected when I felt it was going off and, you know, maybe we need to swap two pieces because, 
you know, the theme was wrong or, or whatever. But for the most part, they just did it on their own. And I just got to drop it <laughs> as, I was, as I was picture locking and just let the magic play out. And I was pretty shocked because we had a very opinionated network executives and they had zero notes on the music. Wow. They just really loved it. Yeah, I love the music as well. It's just fantastic for the theme and the tone of it. Thank you. Yeah, it has a lot of soul and it's it's you wouldn't expect that from a all digital score. And luckily that was the decision before quarantine, but you know, we wouldn't be able to produce anything else really once we were all quarantine so you know i think the choice of an all digital score worked in our favor in terms of just finishing it on time and i love how it develops there's repeating themes there's like i said the brainwashing theme and there's different storylines that get different musical themes and at the end it all builds back to that one sort of overture almost that you hear in the final end credits and yeah i think it's super cool uh, one of the uses of music is not score, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that. It's uh, a section that you would called the Moonlight Arrests, and you use a, a piece of Keith, I think it's Keith, right, playing piano, and you don't know that it's not score. You hear this piano come up underneath, and then you realize somebody's actually playing the piano. <laughs> talk to me about that choice. It's a lot of people's favorite scene in the whole series. I think so brilliant and I can take very little credit for it. <laughs> um, it's really a special product of amazing teamwork. Our senior star producer, Tara Anais, had this idea of intercut these arrests with these women making statements, professing their devotion and love for Keith Raniere. And those are all statements you've heard earlier in the series, in episode one mostly. And we come back to those same clips. We replay those same clips in this new context. And the juxtaposition is, is really cool. And so we had an editor kind of putting it together very roughly when that episode was still like two and a half hours. I mean, it was just a beast of a lot of content and, and narrative and information that we had to get through. At some point, our editor, Jillian McCarthy, who's really brilliant, inherited that section, and she found this piece of Keith Raniere in the insider footage playing Moonlight Sonata on the piano. And Keith was touted not only as the smartest man in the world and a scientist and, you know, a genius, but also as a concert pianist. And it's, it's kind of funny how little piano you have to know to impress the hell out of people so it was like one of the these pieces that you like you can play fairly well like after a, i don't know a year or so of like learning piano of course it's not the hardest piece. yeah it's not the hardest piece but it somehow it, it impresses people and so it's something he just sits down in in one of their retreat spaces is a chapel or whatever with a piano and he sat there and he plays this piece and she said, I really want to use this. I'm thinking either for this scene or that scene. And we looked at it together and I told her, definitely this arrest montage. Let's do something about that. And she said, okay, go out, go away. And so I, you know, I leave the editing room and I come back at the end of the day or the next day. And she put this together and it was just brilliant. It feels like the Godfather montage of like everybody being arrested as they're like, you know, falling on their sword for him and he's playing this piece. And as, as you say, it starts as a score, but then you realize it's, it's really him playing. And at the end, he kind of flubs the end of it. He can't even finish it properly. And he goes, oh, well, it's like, okay. And you realize, oh, I just ruined the lives of all these people. They're all going to be in prison for a long time. And I'm a psychopath, and I don't really give an F about it. So yeah. it's, it's a really interesting kind of marriage of ideas that resulted in a fantastic scene. But it's so interesting that you would say, oh, put it with the arrests. It's not arrest music, you know? <laughs> I don't think of it as arrest music. But as you pointed out, and I, and I had that in my notes, it's brilliantly edited in that here are all these people, as you said, falling on their swords, and 
they obviously back-timed it. It wasn't just luck that it ended up with him messing up the notes on the piano and then going, oh, well, duh, too bad. At the perfect time of all these women, their lives being ruined. Stunning. The first time she put it together, it was maybe almost twice as long, <laughs> and we had to... We had to shrink it. We're like, okay, this is brilliant, but we, uh, let's mm. bring it together. And I think that final kind of distillation of it really made it pop. Um, there's another really interesting juxtaposition that I love that you kind of hinted at, which is in the scene that you called the India tapes, which was really the trial itself and India kind of getting over Keith going, hey, I saw him in the, in the, the trial and he seemed small. Then it cuts to, there's a neuromuscular trauma specialist, and it's intercut with the trial, right? Or, it's, or, or does it just come out of the trial? It comes out of the trial, sort of in the middle of the trial, before the conclusion of the trial. India, who's been on the witness list, so she's basically on standby to take the stand and testify against Keith Raniere. She has to kind of deal with that tension, with that anticipation and, and anxiety and nightmares. And as she's hearing about the trial unfolding and she's not supposed to like know too much about what's happening in the courtroom, she just knows that she's on standby. Cecilia's true gift of empathy and connection with her subjects is what allows to capture such, a, such an incredible scene. It's, it's just in a tiny little room uh, this neuromuscular trauma specialist who's basically does this body work, this mu- muscle body work in a tiny room in New York City. And India, who's had a difficult time responding to talk therapy because of the experience in Nexium was a lot of kind of pseudo talk therapy. She's been through many hours of deprogramming, but she also wanted to show and share with us that she's also used other non-typical or non-traditional forms of therapy. She says herself she was very privileged to have access to a lot of different forms of therapy and healing as she's trying to, to get out of this and heal from this terrible, terrible experience. And so one of the scenes is she allowed us to go to the specialist that she was seeing in New York City and she pushes on certain pressure points. And at some point, she pushes on that side of India's hip where she had that brand, where she has this very physical trauma on her skin. And it was just a tiny moment in this one-hour session, but India really breaks down. And I remember Cecilia called me because I was not on that shoot I was on many of them, but on that one, I was back in L.A. cutting, and she called me after this happened, and she said, we have to use this. This was an amazing moment. I don't even know if it was captured properly on camera. We're there for an hour, but there's this one moment towards the end. Please find it and see what we can do with it. And so we had this scene that we tried to use in different places of India having a real moment of very visceral confrontation with her trauma. We tried it in, as I said, in different places and couldn't find place for it. And we were approaching picture lock and there was really still no place for it. And I was editing in the shower, as I usually do. <laughs> not, not literally, hopefully. No, in my head. I do the same thing. Totally understand. Yeah, right? As I, I, you know, I tell producers, you should let me go sleep because I edit in my sleep and I edit in the shower. I I process those Mm -hmm. dreams in my morning shower. And that's when I know what I need to cut that day. 100%. And so as soon as I got out of the shower, probably was still in (laughs) in my towel, I texted Cecilia, I think I got, I think I got the idea. And we've been trying to construct this moment um, for India to reckon with her guilt, which was very significant part of her process. And we've had scenes that we've had to cut where she actually talks to people she tried to recruit and ask for their forgiveness. And we didn't have access to, to women who she recruited into DOS. You know, there was a lot of pieces of audio that she spoke told us both in interview and in therapy and in different 
places where she talks about this immense guilt of looking herself and confronting the things she did and thinking she was a monster. And how was she capable of doing some of the things they made her do? And can she live with herself? And I realized that that was a perfect marriage of that visual of her getting the body work and having this, this cry over her own trauma and her culpability in the organization and those ideas that we had in pieces of audio and that that was the right place for them, that as she was just was told that she's no longer needed to testify, with a little bit of a, of a spoiler alert, but she, as she's being released from having to testify and trying to figure out why this happened, how would she let it happen, and can she still be useful in some way um, with this sort of unresolved thing. She really thought testifying was going to be the thing that would help her kind of find resolution and closure and move forward, and then she doesn't get it. The scene really kind of helps bring home the pain, the confusion, the unresolved feelings. And then she, later she, she figures out what to do with that. My wife's a massage therapist, and I know that a lot of people have extreme reactions to body work where it brings back memories, it releases, ten, it releases not tension, but releases like a psychic stuff. It's interesting you say that. We had a version of the scene where the therapist actually talks about the process and she talks about trauma that's trapped in the fascia, in the mm -hmm. fluid that surrounds your bones, mm -hmm. and that somehow in her pressure, in her work, she opens up or adjusts the flow of it. Mm -hmm. I had some experience with craniosacral many, many years ago, therapy that has something to do with adjustment of the fascia fluid. Ultimately, we didn't need her to say anything. So we cut that dialogue out and we just let the, Im the images and Lindia's thoughts carry that scene. Yeah, that was just beautiful and, and wonderful. Imbal, thank you so much for letting us in on your process. It's really uh, a fascinating documentary. Very hard for me at and probably for you, I would think, to watch. Let me end with one last question. When you are working on something like this for so long, how do you deal with the darkness of it or the difficulty of watching some of this content? Thank you for this question. I think it's that doesn't get asked often enough. And I'm actually a member in an organization called ADE, the Alliance of Documentary Editors. And we had just started a mental health subcommittee that attempts to address issues of mental health for editors dealing with secondhand trauma through ex long-term exposure to material like this. It's been my, how I built my career. I mean, you know, I've done years of work on the Decade series for CNN, and they always dump those heavy topics, the tough topics, I, is the ones in Balgats, you know. I get the AIDS and the war and the terrorism and the you know, rape and sexual assault and genocide and, like, that's been my career. It's, it's not comedies, it's not sitcoms. And it does take a toll, but you learn to compartmentalize, you learn to process, like I said, in your sleep. Sometimes you do have to disengage emotionally and, like, just really look at the story more clinically. And there might be some, like, horrific murder and abuse and rape and death but you kind of have to still look at it as a story with beginning, middle, and end, and with a resolution, and with tension, and with climax or, or conflict. I think once you distill it down to those pieces and work it out on a board, whether it's on the wall or digital, you know, it does help you to grasp the story. And for me personally, those are the films that make it worthwhile. I mean, it's so difficult making documentaries, even when they're not on dark, difficult subject matters. It's just a difficult process, and the hours are crazy, the intensity, the creativity, the kind of toll it takes on you, on your personal life. So for me, when there's an opportunity to tell a story that is really going to touch people, 
and hopefully teach them something, change their way they view a certain person or subject matter, give them newfound empathy. I've seen the effects that this important work can have. Brave Miss World has a website that has now 10 million visitors. It's the number one Google search result when people are looking to share their rape story. So it has become like an international central hub and a collection of testimonials by rape survivors and family members. You can see when you tell an important story and you put your heart and soul into it and you feel the weight of the responsibility to give it justice, to do it justice, that it can really impact people. And the more entertaining and palatable you can make it, the more people get to have that experience of interacting with your story. And so I think we really accomplished that with Seduced, to have a story that's fun. Perhaps it's not always easy, but it's interesting and, and, and thrilling to watch. And it's still very effective. And we've now started a website for that film, for, that, for the series, and already has been getting a lot of emails and letters from comments from people who are recognizing this dynamics of coercion in their own lives, in their political system. A lot of people have been um, drawing parallels to our political situation in this country. They're seeing it in their workplace, in their romantic relationships, in perhaps groups that they didn't know or didn't recognize as cults, but now they're realizing there was dangerous coercive dynamics. So it's incredibly rewarding to make work that has that impact. I see that as a responsibility, and I am happy to take the brunt of the exposure to that material. On that note, Inbal, thank you so much for your time and for your expertise and for sharing that with the many editors that listen in. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Inbal Lesner, ACE. Also, thanks to Dylan Giovanetto, who edited this episode using Adobe Audition, and to Paul McKenna for mixing and mastering. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend. <laughs>